So we're going to talk about this uh, name of God today, YHWH, but I want to start with a C.S. Lewis quote because I love this quote. He says, there have been men who were so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself. There have been those throughout history that were so <clears throat> bent on proving the existence of God that they came to a point where they cared nothing for God himself. I, I would have to say that when I was going through seminary, four years of getting my, my, my master's, my theological degree, I ran into people like that that got so caught up in the intellectual, <clears throat> in the academics of what we were studying that kind of um, almost unconsciously they lost touch with that relationship with God that we're supposed to hold so dear. And one of the reasons why we're studying the names of God is because we believe that each of God's names tells us something about his character, about who he is. We started off last week by saying that names today are <clears throat> given to kids or things because they sound nice, or maybe they have a family history, or a number of different reasons. But names in ancient times held huge significance. They had to do with a person's purpose and, and calling in life, with their destiny. And so they were very carefully chosen, and they spoke to the core and the heart of who somebody was, their very character. And that is certainly true of God when we come to uh, this name. This, this, uh, this four-letter construction, YHWH, I was telling the men on Friday morning, they kind of get a preview of Sunday sermons, so they always feel like they come prepared, knowing in advance what we're going to talk about. But the, the theological name for that, the, the killer scrabble word, the words with friends word to end all other words, is this word called tetragrammaton. If you're taking notes today on the outline, I want to let some of you know the first two minutes today, this sermon is probably going to go a lot deeper than many of you care to go. And don't worry about that. There will be a simple takeaway and a deep takeaway. Some of you want to get every bit of this and know the, the history and the origin, the etymology of how this name evolved over years and why it came to be what it is. Others of you are like, just tell me the big picture. So hold on for a moment because we're going to go really deep for just a moment because I don't want to dumb it down for you. I realize there's both, of, both audiences here today. So if you love to take notes, take notes. If you don't love taking notes, I'll give you the big picture at the end, but just hold with me. This YHWH is called a tetragrammaton. And here's the deal. Ancient Hebrew didn't include vowels in the written form. The vowels were pronounced uh, orally as they would speak the language, but they were never recorded in written Hebrew. So the appropriate vowel sounds of words were passed down by oral tradition. And as a result, ancient Hebrew is studied today uh, in such a way that scholars and linguists don't have absolute confidence how certain Hebrew words were pronounced, because it's thousands of years ago. And there's tradition, and there's historians that argue for this or that, but we don't know for sure. I want to define two words today so you just understand. There's a difference between a word translation most of us know what it means to translate. To translate a word means to give us the meaning of that word. There's another word very similar to that that's completely different. There's a word called transliterate. Transliterate is a big concept, but this is what it is in simple terms. When you are translating a foreign language, 
when you take the characters of that foreign language and translate it into your language, that's called transliteration. So transliteration is taking the Hebrew characters and supplying English characters for them. It's taking Latin or Greek and putting English or whatever your native language is so that you can pronounce that word in your own language. It doesn't give you the meaning of that word, but it helps you pronounce. And that's where we get words like Yahweh and Jehovah and Elohim and Adonai and all the names for God. The Hebrew looks quite different. The Greek looks quite different, but it helps us pronounce it in our own language. So translation is meaning, transliteration. It's just putting it in characters that help us to understand it. In trying to understand uh, God's name, Y-H-W-H, it becomes complex because it's not universally agreed upon how this Hebrew name should be pronounced. Some believe it should be Yahweh. Others think it should be Yehovah or Yahuwah or Yahawah or perhaps Jehovah. And some of you are like, who cares? And I get that. But virtually all of those pronunciations is up for debate, and you can read reams of stuff on the Internet and in theological works that argue for one over the other. Some people say, should YHWH be pronounced with three syllables or with two syllables? Again, some of you are like, I don't care. Just tell me what it means. Some ask whether the vowels should be borrowed from the word Elohim or the word Adonai. Again, many of you don't care, but it lets you know why over the years it was translated as it is translated. Should the W be pronounced like a W sound or a V sound? On and on and on. The vast majority of biblical scholars and linguists don't believe that Jehovah is the accurate translation. And there's a few reasons for that. One, there's no J sound in ancient Hebrew. So that's a compelling reason for why it maybe shouldn't be Jehovah. Secondly, the Hebrew letter Vav, which is translated as a W in YHWH, is said to originally have been pronounced closer to a W sound than a V sound. And lastly, Jehovah is essentially the transliteration from Latin. And so it's not really retaining the accuracy of the Hebrew, but it's, it's trying to accommodate the Latin language. And like I said, there's no J even in the Hebrew language. That's all the thick stuff. Some of you can take notes and enjoy that, but that's the deep weeds that we've just crawled through. Here's the end of the, the, the matter. If you look at your Bible and you read the word Lord in the Old Testament, or you read the word Jehovah, or if your Bible happens to say Yahweh, all of it goes back to the same Hebrew word. And we're going to talk about the essence of that today, what it means. So that's the stuff that today is made of. What you need to know is that that word is translated and used more than any other name of God in the Old Testament, 6,519 times in the Old Testament. It is the most used word of God. We talked last week about how God introduces himself to his creation as Elohim, as the creator. In Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, verse 3, it's used 39 times, Elohim. It's the only word that's used of God. And then in Genesis 2-4 is the first time that we see God introducing himself to his people and his creation as YHWH. And I'm going to argue that that is Yahweh. That is the agreed-upon, most-believed translation. So instead of saying Jehovah, instead of saying anything, I'm going to just 
supply Yahweh today so you guys can track with me. Elohim spoke of God's creative power. Yahweh speaks about his relational involvement with creation. When we studied Elohim, we talked about God's power and presence. As we talk about Yahweh today, we're talking about his person and his character. Elohim is the side of God who created the heavens and the earth. Yahweh is the side of God who relates to them personally on an intimate level. So both are important, but they're different aspects of his name. It's possible for a person to believe in Elohim, God, and yet not know him personally as Yahweh. There are plenty of people that want and desire God's power, but they don't want anything to do with him. They don't want to have a relationship with him. They don't want to be held accountable to him. They just want power to make things work in their life, and that's understandable. But there's a differentiation there. Yahweh is the God who personally reveals himself to us. And oftentimes it's through the trials and struggles of our life that those are some of the most powerful and memorable times that God shows us new things about who he is. Well, at the very moment that God reveals himself to his creation as Yahweh, after a whole chapter of 39 times saying, I am Elohim, I am the creator God. And he did that once again, review last week, because he wanted us to know that he was from the beginning. Before him, nothing existed. He was pre-existent. He's eternal. He's always been there. And so we need to understand that, that he got everything rolling and going. That's why he introduced himself as Elohim. But now as he introduced himself as the intimate, personal God, strategically, Satan came in. The devil came in in the Garden of Eden and sought to deceive and to alienate creation from God. And he did it in a very subtle, deceptive way. In Genesis 3, God refers to himself as Lord God. It's literally Yahweh Elohim. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am both the creator and I am the personal, relational God. And when the snake, when Satan in the form of a serpent, tries to deceive Eve by getting her to eat from the tree of the fruit of life, he said, what did God tell you? And she said, well, he said that from any tree in the garden we can eat, but we can't eat from this one tree. And Satan tried to, you know, um, blow that out of proportion. And instead of having her focus on all the options that were available to her, he wanted her to focus on the one thing that was denied from her. And isn't that how we're usually tempted? We might have lots of options and lots of things available to us, but we always tend to focus in on the one thing that we can't have, the one thing that's withheld from us, and that's the thing that we want more than anything else. That's how the devil works in tempting us. But when, when the devil rephrased what God had said, he left out the name Yahweh. He said, did Elohim say? And it's, it's subtle and it's insidious for this reason. He wanted Adam and Eve and creation to relate to God as the ruler, as the dictator, not as the relational father. Because a ruler, a dictator, a creator is somebody that can be distant from us, that can be far off, that cannot be intimately involved in our lives. And it's easy for us to disobey or to do something contrary to what he wants. But an intimate, personal creator God, a father, is a lot harder to 
rebel against and to go a separate way from. So Satan's goal was to get Eve and subsequently Adam to drop the name Yahweh from their association from God. He didn't mind if they called him Elohim, the great powerful creator, because as I said, Elohim could be a distant, far-off God. But when Yahweh is brought into the conversation, God becomes personal. He becomes interactive. A being who designed and purposed and intimately knows Adam and Eve and all of his creation. If you think about it, Satan basically does the same thing with you and I today. That's his tactic. It's very strategic. It's very insidious. The devil doesn't mind if you and I have a bit of religion in our lives. He doesn't care if we come to church to meet Elohim or if we talk on our jobs about Elohim as long as we don't bring Yahweh into the conversation. Because the moment we bring in Yahweh, he becomes a personal God with whom we are in a relationship. And as I thought about that point, I thought the exact same thing is true of Jesus. You can talk about God all day long, and that doesn't offend people, because people interpret God to be whatever they want God to be. But the moment you interject Jesus into a conversation, it polarizes things. Because people either love Jesus or they hate Jesus. He's very divisive. It's very exclusive. It's easier to twist things or to add things, as Eve did, in saying that they weren't even supposed to touch the, the fruit of the tree. God never said you can't touch it. He said you can't eat it. When we talk about the impersonal being, being off in the distance, it's much more difficult when this Yahweh God is right there with us intimately knowing us, caring about us, guiding us, and carrying the authority of what it means for him to be master over our lives. Get the difference between creator and Yahweh, personal God? Yahweh probably, well, not even probably. I, I would argue that the most personal expression or revelation of God that we have in all of the Bible is Jesus. God came to earth in human flesh through Jesus. God said, you've never seen me. You want to know what I'm like? Here's my son. He is exactly my essence, my radiance. My He's everything that I am. If you want, Jesus said at many points, why do you ask to see God? He who has seen me has seen God. I and the Father are one. Book of Hebrews, Jesus is the exact representation, the exact uh, DNA and radiance of God. On and on and on. Jesus is God. And scripture goes to great lengths to prove that. But not just that, Jesus is the most personal expression of God. And I want to talk about a few um, elements or aspects of who this Yahweh God is. And that's where you can take notes in your outline today. The first is this. Yahweh is self-existing. Yahweh is self-existing. The literal definition of Yahweh is, I am who I am. And probably one of the best uh, portrayals of this that I've seen is in a kid's movie that I want you to watch with me for just a second. It's Prince of Egypt. If you've never seen this, it's a great thing to show your kids. Hollywood did such an amazing job of capturing the accuracy of this. Take a look for just a moment with me. <coughs> Turn the sound way up, please. Higher.
God introduces himself as I am who I am. And the first thing that we need to understand about him is that he's a self-existent being. It doesn't just mean that he exists, but he exists in himself. He doesn't depend upon anything outside of himself for his existence. Nothing outside contributes in terms of resources or the life that he has. And all of us exist on a different level because we exist because we were created. We exist because we had parents before us. Because they were, we are. None of us are just because we are. But God is self-existent. And that's one of the first things that we come to understand about him. Each one of us depends upon oxygen or we would cease to exist like that. We depend upon food and water and resources. But God is self-existent. I love what Paul says about God in Colossians chapter 1. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. 
He made the things that we see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. God is self-existent, and everything else has existence through him. Paul says in Romans 11:36, for, for him, I'm sorry, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. God is self-existent. Secondly, Yahweh is self-generating. Self-generating. Kind of a a concept that blows us away. I was going on the internet trying to find examples of things that are considered to be self-generating today. And I I read about scientists who have discovered a self-generating yarn made from graphene oxide strands. Don't ask me for a moment to define what a graphite oxine strand is, but they have discovered that it can self-generate and make yarn. If you go on Google or Amazon, you will find cosmetics that are advertising self-generating aging creams, which I'm assuming that only means you need to put it on once, because after you apply it once, it just self-generates and takes away all the wrinkles, and and you're constantly becoming younger. Schwinn has a stationary bike, exercise bike, that's advertised on sale right now for $3,000, and they're promoting it as having a self-generating console that supplies power to the digital screen and all the different functional components. And as I read that, I thought, uh, you can't think that we're so stupid not to realize that we are the ones generating the power. As you're working hard and sweating on this machine, you're generating the functions, and yeah, you won't need batteries, but you're, you're keeping it going. There's really nothing in life that is self-generating. Probably the best example that we have in our human experience is the sun. Neither you or I have to fire it up every day, have to reheat it, refuel it, or keep it burning, because by its very nature, God maintains the sun. And this is just a small glimpse into the self-generating aspect of creation. But it's still an imperfect example because the sun didn't create itself and it's not always going to be around. There will be a point where it will cease to exist. Everything in our world that we consider to be an example of self-generation was created. It started from something or with something, with raw materials. God is the only true independent being in all of the universe. Because he's the only being that is truly self-existing and self-generating. That's what it means to be God, to be Yahweh. Yahweh is uncreated. He's not dependent upon any outside forces or any outside resources. Well, thirdly, Yahweh is self-sufficient. What does it mean to be self-sufficient? It means that he's self-generating, he perpetuates himself provides for himself throughout all eternity. He doesn't depend upon anyone or anything else for his existence and for his ongoing life. I was thinking about this. Somewhere, somehow, at some point throughout history, we got this misplaced notion that the church is basically about meeting God's needs. 
He, he needs us to dress up every week and to tell him how great he is. He needs us to read from his book and sing his songs so that they won't go out of print. He needs us to give money to his church and volunteer for all of his activities so that his organization won't uh, cease to exist. It, on and on. I mean, you can probably relate to this. We grow up, and so many of us have this impression that it's all about what we do for God, all the shoulds and the oughts and the musts, because there's so much that God needs us to do. He needs us to give. He needs us to work harder. He needs us to defend him out there in the world. And we come to believe that God is somehow insufficient without all of our effort. We would never verbalize that, but we kind of operate like that many times. And it's a false notion. Again, the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 17. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men and women life and breath in everything else. From one man he created every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. The scripture says that God is, is self-existent. He's self-generating. He's self-sufficient. The Bible says that God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our temples and our cathedrals and our buildings, as pretty as they might be. He doesn't need our religious ceremonies. He doesn't need our affirmations of his worth. He doesn't need our nation or our political parties. He doesn't need our efforts to enforce a dress code. And he doesn't need us to stipulate the times and the places for meeting him and connecting with him and encountering him. He doesn't need us to organize reality on his behalf. God is self-sufficient. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 90, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from the beginning to the end, you are God. But somehow we got this notion that God can't get by without us. He's so dependent upon us. Before the universe came into being, God already was and always would be. He was and is perfectly content, joyful, and completely fulfilled in simply himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's a party right there. That's a relationship. That's a community. They, they didn't need to create us because they were lonely and they were bored or they were looking for purpose. They were fully complete. That's what it means to be God. Fully complete, fully satisfied, fully sufficient in and of himself. That's why it's so amazing that he created us. Because God is self-existing, self-perpetuating, and self-satisfying. The mystery is that this God, this self-sufficient God, chose to create us and chose to enter into a personal relationship with us and through his word to tell us how that could happen, how we could live in a relationship with him, how we could discover his love and his joy and his glory. The final thing about Yahweh is that Yahweh is immutable. 
And by immutable, we mean unchanging. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says about Jesus, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You and I are constantly changing. Daily we get older. Our hair turns gray. Our skin wrinkles and sags. Our, our memory is not what it used to be. But none of this applies to God. God is outside of time. God is not dependent upon or influenced by the constraints of time. He is unchanging. He's always in the present tense, never steps out of the present tense. He's always now, always available. I thought about that means that God never becomes irrelevant. He's always current, which is mind-blowing. A billion years from now, God will be still just as relevant as he is right now and just as relevant as he was when he started creation and, and got the whole thing spinning. God is eternally present, eternally relevant, eternally available through Jesus. But when you come to Scripture, there's a lot of passages that seem to suggest that God changes his mind. And so I want to talk about that for a moment. When you read the book of Jonah, we read how God was going to destroy the city of Nineveh. But then they repented, and so he changed his mind and he spared them. When you read the book of Exodus... God was fed up with his people and he was going to wipe them off the face of the earth, but Moses pleaded with God and God changed his mind. And so if God is immutable and unchanging, how does it seem that at times he changes course in the decisions he makes? One of my favorite pastors and authors, Tony Evans, cites James chapter 1, verse 17 as a great starting point for an example that he gives. James 1, 17 says this, Every good and perfect thing given... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Listen to what he says about that in his book, The Power of God's Names. He says, God is the creator of the lights above, the stars and the sun. The star in our solar system is the sun, which gets its source from the Father of lights. The sun, the sun stays hot. It never needs to be heated back up. Over thousands of years, it has never dimmed. Yet despite its changelessness, a shifting shadow is associated with the sun. We call it nighttime. When nighttime occurs, darkness covers half the earth, and the other half of the earth experiences the light of the sun. The half that is turned away from the sun experiences the shadow of night. As James wrote, there's no shifting shadow with the Father of lights, yet you and I deal with shadows in our lives every day. We experience darkness even though the sun hasn't changed, because as the earth turns away from the sun, we enter into a shadow. The sun is consistent, the sun is constant and regular, but the shadow comes because we move away. Yahweh is the great immutable God. He is who he is, and he continues to be all that he is throughout all of eternity. Yet sometimes we experience what we consider to be a change in his mind, because as we turn, our distance from God casts spiritual shadows in our life. He hasn't changed, but our perception and experience of him has adjusted to our turning. 
When we adjust to or highlight God's character and God's way, light comes where there once was darkness simply because we're turning toward him. And that's what I love about this series is as we unpack the names of God, as we learn what each uh, name of God means, it, it opens up a new dimension and, and aspect of his character to us and how he relates to us. And it's, it's another way that we can connect with him and turn to him and understand who he is. I, I want to close today with just this thought that I think all of us experience in life. And, and, and it's this challenge. What do we do in the times of our life when God doesn't make sense? When God doesn't make sense. Going back to that Prince of Egypt clip for a moment. Moses was raised by Pharaoh and, and royalty, remember, because Pharaoh slaughtered all the little kids when he was a baby, and so his mom put him in the basket, floated him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter found him. He was raised as the prince of Egypt. But when he became an adult, he saw an Egyptian and a Hebrew in an argument, and he went to defend his Hebrew brother, and he killed the Egyptian. And when he did that, he not only alienated himself from the royalty that he grew up with, but his own people. His own people disassociated from him because they didn't want to associate with a murderer that was now on the most wanted list. And the royalty immediately disowned him. And so after this, Moses went out into the wilderness and he was a shepherd for 40 years. For 40 years, he thought it was over. My life is through. I have, I have kissed goodbye any blessing or opportunity that I had. I've alienated all the people I was connected with. And before God spoke to him, that was preceded by 40 years of just hanging out with sheep, feeling like, this is how I'm going to die. I, you know, I'm going to drop dead one day next to the rocks and the sheep, and no one's even going to know. I mean, life is over. And God chose to minister to him, to reach him. Satan often tempts us and challenges us during the struggles of our lives the harsh realities. He causes us to question God's existence, certainly God's love for us. And what I want to argue today is we're tempted to run from God. We're tempted to shake our fist at God. We're, we're tempted to, to live our own way and walk away. But this is precisely the time that we need to lean into God, that we need to seek him, that we need to turn toward him rather than away from him. Perhaps there's something in your life right now that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Most of the time, there are plenty of things that don't make sense. Maybe it's something that seems like a contradiction in your life. I mean, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his only son upon an altar, he must have thought, God has gone mad. All of the other cultures around us, they do that kind of thing, human sacrifice. The God of Israel does not do that. Why would he ask me to... That's a total contradiction of his nature and, and his character and everything that he is. And yet, Abraham was obedient, and God supplied a sacrifice because God knew that Abraham's heart was his. In the midst of things that seem to be a contradiction, those are the times we need to lean in. Perhaps you're facing a really difficult decision right now. Maybe you're in the moment, uh, the middle of a health crisis or a financial issue that's beyond your ability to work out. Maybe it's a rocky marriage. Maybe it's a wayward child that's wandered from the Lord and the church and even your family. On and on and on. All of us have something that hurts deep. 
And it hurts because we can't fix it. It's not about working harder, trying to buckle down. It's something that only God can fix. And many times we pray and pray and pray and feel like he doesn't listen. He doesn't answer. I'm sure Moses prayed like that for 40 years before God finally talked to him. And my point here is to remember to look to the burning bush. Don't get so confused by seeming contradictions that we miss God. And we miss God trying to talk to us through the bush, through the trial, through the struggle, through the apparent contradiction. When God wants to show us a side of himself that we've never seen before, he often does it in the middle of a mess, in the middle of a problem, in the middle of a challenging circumstance or or a trial, a burning bush, if you will. And our job is not just to look at the bush, but to look at that deeper connection with God, that deeper truth or principle that he wants to teach us through what he's allowing us to go through. Too many of us stop short at the bush. And it's interesting that God didn't reveal himself to Moses until Moses turned aside from what he was doing. He turned aside from his routine and he said, that's interesting, there's a bush on fire but it's not being consumed, it's just burning constantly. I got to check that out. And it's as he stopped what he was doing and went and looked to see what was going on, to see what God was doing, that God revealed himself to him. If Moses had failed to turn aside, he would have missed hearing about God's supernatural plan for his life that he could have never come up with on his own and that he would have never believed had anybody else told him but God. I want to close by saying this, that I believe that God has amazing things for each and every one of us. And it comes as we lean into his plan and his will, as we press through the challenges of our life and seek not Elohim, the creator God, who gives us raw power, but Yahweh, the relational God. It's both. It's not either or, but it's not stopping short of the God, the genie in the bottle that gives me power and allows me to be successful in life, but it's desiring a personal relationship with that God. That Scripture says that it happens through Jesus that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, that whoever might believe in him would have eternal life and would not perish, would not suffer death. It's only when we come to know God as Yahweh, as Yahweh the Lord, the personal God, the self-revealing God, that we enter into that relationship. We have one more word that we're going to look at next week, Adonai. These are the three foundational names of God, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai. Then we get into the compound words. But every week, we're going to be discovering a new aspect of God's character and who he is, not just for knowledge's sake, but we're going to understand about how he relates to us and how he loves us and his plan for us. So I'm excited about it, and I look forward to sharing that with you.